I think it's important. You know, we, we hear a lot. We hear the messaging that we get a lot is like, you know, never quit. And I'm just like, that's actually the wrong messaging. I think we need to be okay with pivoting when, when the pivot is necessary. And it's not that you quit at the drop of a dime because something is not working out in the moment. Oftentimes when something is not working out, it means you have to adjust something. Like if you keep doing the same thing over and over again and it's not working out, you keep been, you haven't changed anything, you keep trying, that's madness. This episode is brought to you by our sponsor, The Dot Store Domains, where you can get your own custom Dot Store domain to set up your own site to sell products or services. You know, different from any other .com, .net, or other extension, the dot .store domain really gives your customers a destination to shop for your stuff. Think about your domain name, .store. It instantly tells people your website has a store, and so your URL does a lot of the marketing and work for you. I tried it out myself and set up my own .store with Behind the Brand. It's behindthebrand.store. And you can find some of your favorite books from authors that I love and have also had on the show who've been here and gracious enough to give us their books at a super great price, even better than you get on Amazon. This is for a limited time, so you might want to check it out. You can get your own .store domain by going to my special link. It's a bit.ly link, which is bit.ly slash your custom store. That's bit.ly, B-I-T dot L-Y slash your custom store. And now let's get into the episode. I'm Lovey Jai Jones, and I'm a writer, a speaker, a professional troublemaker, and you are watching Behind the Brand with Brian Elliott. Ooh, that was clean. Hey, I'm Brian Elliott. Welcome to another edition of Behind the Brand. Thank you for having me. I usually ask my guests, how did you get this job? Ooh. How I got this job was through a series of fortunate accidents. Um, I thought I was going to be a doctor. Uh, growing up, that was the dream, and I ended up taking Chemistry 101 my freshman year of college, where I got the first and last D of my academic career. I instantly dropped the doctor dream and realized I don't even like hospitals, so I thought the dream would be psychology, so I actually got my degree in psychology. But um, the semester that I got that D, I ended up starting a weblog, that's what it was called back then, because my friends peer pressured me to doing it. So I had my whole college career documented in this blog where I was talking about exams I wasn't studying for, whatever roommate drama I was having. And what I didn't realize was happening was my real purpose was taking shape. So when I graduated with my college degree, with my psychology degree in 2006, I deleted my college blog and started awesomelylovey.com, which I still have. And instead of talking about my undergrad life, I was talking about life as I saw it. Um, TV, randomness, race, politics, shenanigans, just whatever I felt like talking about, I did on this blog. And I went to work nine to five as a marketing coordinator for a nonprofit, and I'd come home and write on awesomelylovey.com. So over the years, more and more people started reading this little website of mine. Um, in 2009, it actually won its first award, and it was for the best humor blog in the Black Web Blog Awards. Um, April 2010, I got laid off my marketing coordinator job, and I did not take it as a sign that I was supposed to focus on the blog. I was like, you know what? While I look for a full-time job, I will do the digital communications work that I was doing for my full-time um, job for small business owners, entrepreneurs, other bloggers to make money. So I was doing that, still sending out my resume, 
And there were a few times when I wanted to delete the blog because I'm like, you know what? Maybe I should pay more attention to looking for a new job than doing this blogging thing. But every time I'd want to do that, somebody would send me a note that's like, hey, I was reading your blog when I was sitting in the waiting room as my mom got chemotherapy and that's why I wasn't crying. It was like God and the universe were giving me these signs that was like, this is what you're supposed to be doing. So after a year and a half of looking for jobs, um, I actually got credentialed to do press coverage at the Academy Awards in 2012. So I was on the red carpet and backstage access. So I'm standing next to journalists from the BBC. I'm standing next to folks from CNN. And here I am as awesomely lovey in the same place as them. And it was then that I finally felt convicted to start calling myself a writer. I wasn't just a blogger. I wasn't just a person who had this website. I was someone who was using her words to move people, to make them think critically, to make them feel joy, and to compel them to take action, to leave the world better than they found it. And I was finding myself in the rooms with people who had these big titles. So I finally was like, okay, I am a writer. I am purposed to use my words for the greater good, in addition to using my, my work as a marketer. So. Yeah. Let's put a timestamp on that because I I want to just go back and maybe delineate for those who maybe are new to, you know, that decade. I mean, you're talking about 2009, 10, 11, 12. That was a very special time. That was really when, uh, I mean, we were in the heart of the Great Recession. Those are hard yeah. times. And yeah. uh, like a lot of people, whether you're displaced, downsized, fired, let go, whatever, you know, you're out of work. Um, a lot of people were taking up writing or blogging at that time. Blogging was just coming onto the scene. Twitter is just a couple of years old, so people were micro-blogging. You yep. know, blogs had just come, come onto the scene, and it was really becoming a platform uh, where people could express themselves. Uh, you had some, some big-time bloggers, you know, I think about Seth Godin, who's had his blog forever. Um, but really, you know, writers and thought leaders like you were just starting to sort of come into their own and yeah. get validated, legitimized. And uh, that was a special time. It really was. So I think about the fact that I'm an early adopter of all the social platforms. Um, I've been on Facebook since July 2004. Facebook started mm -hmm. in February 2004 because I went to a big tent. So it was like they opened up to Harvard, Ivy Leagues, and then big tens were next. And one of my friends that I went to college with, I think was friends with Mark Zuckerberg. And they were Very at cool. the same dorm. So when Facebook started and they opened up to Big Ten, she told me, she's like, so have you joined the Facebook? And I was like, okay. So I ended up joining and I'm, and I'm basically the gateway to a bunch of my friends joining. Twitter yeah. I joined in September 2008, you know, mm -hmm. and then Instagram I've been on since 2012. So yeah with the work that I was doing in blogosphere and also being just a natural digital native, it worked to my benefit because even though at that point it was still really truly the wild, wild west, um, I was using yeah. social to promote my work. Um, you know, even yeah. if I had, I don't know how many Facebook friends I had at that point, but I'd be like, I just posted something and you just drop a random link. So all of that actually did help in the growth of my blog, and I didn't realize how strategic I actually was being. I was like accidentally strategic. And yeah, mm -hmm. back then, because blogging was not considered this major industry, 
I was actually able to write without strategy, without deceit, without any type of like pretense because I wasn't writing with the intention of something bigger coming from it. I was writing purely because I love to write. So I, and I think yeah. that was a gift because it taught me, it gave me the practice of speaking the truth out loud in public. And yeah, during those years of blogging, I think everybody was truly their authentic selves, like in the in the way that you could say it was most possible because again, none of us really had these grand expectations of what would come from us doing what we were doing. And I think that gave it, the, the pure intention of it gave it strength and it gave it authenticity that sometimes is missing now from people when they're just starting today. I agree, it was a very, exploratory time. Can we go back in the chronology a little bit to young Lovey? Uh, you talked about you wanted to go into medicine. I kind of felt the same way when I was younger. So, you know, we're starting to have this Venn diagram that overlaps a little bit between us. Um, did you get influence from your parents? What did your parents think? And did they steer you in any particular direction? I ask that because, you know, uh, there's a lot of people who watch this show of all different ages. Um, I think the common thread among all of them is that everyone's trying to find their passion, their true calling, their element. You know, like, whether that's the fish to water, bird to the air, it's like, yeah. where do I belong? You know, and so I, what did you want to be when you grew up? What were you thinking yeah, about? Yeah, so I was born and raised in Nigeria, and a lot of Nigerian parents, they want you to be a doctor, a lawyer, you know, engineer, yeah. and I paced doctor because I was like, yeah, I want to do, I do want to help the world. I want to help people. So five-year-old me was like, I'm going to be a doctor. Um, yeah. And I was really bookish and nerdish. And so it, it tracked. And coming to the U.S. at nine, it was one of the things that I came, brought with me was this dream. But I think I didn't realize how much it was in my dream until I went to college. You know, when mm -hmm. you hear something enough, you start forgetting that it was other people's voices that might have introduced it to you, not yours. Yeah. So can I ask? So did your parents want that because they wanted to make a world a better place, or they wanted you to have some stability in your life, and they knew that medicine could provide that for you? Not sure what the motive was, because I think it's just a very commonplace um, occupation that a lot of immigrant parents want for their kids because I, it's probably yeah. the stability of it all. The fact that, you know, you're guaranteed a paycheck. It, it is very noble of a profession. So I can see yeah. all of that tied in, in one, um, being the reason. And especially if your kid is capable, like, you know, really smart and you know, they can handle it. Yeah. You definitely want them to be this thing. But I think because back then also there's, how now that we can create careers we want almost out of the thin air, that was barely the option. So yeah, I think that was True. a big part of that. Yeah, I think that was a big part of that, but definitely was not. Is that why you all ended up at, at a Big Ten school? Because that was sort of a path, like sort of a traditional no. path? No, I chose uh, Illinois because a lot of my friends were going because it was not it was far from home, but also still close enough because it was three hours away from Chicago. Same school colors as my high school. So I was just like, mm, okay, I'm going to go there. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah, I ended up at a Big Ten accidentally. I could have ended up anywhere, but I was just kind of like, oh, I'll go to Illinois. I didn't care that it was a Big Ten. I didn't even really know what Big Ten meant. Um, but it worked out So because I could come home on weekends if I felt like it or not. So it was kind of like the best of both worlds of still being tied to home but not being at home. Um, All right. But, yeah, no, when I got that D, I think it was – it was a clear moment of realization for me that 
going into the sciences is not something that I was passionate about. And honestly, not something that I was good at. I'm not typically a quick quitter. Like, I am the person who's like, if it's important to me, I will see it through. The fact that I instantly quit let me know that it wasn't for me to see through. Like, it was very much unlike me to be like, oh, man, I faced this roadblock, dropped the dream. So the fact that I was so compelled to do it actually in itself was letting me know that I was choosing the right decision. I was making the right decisions to walk away from this path that I set for myself. Yeah, can I just point out another really important lesson you just said? It was subtle. So for anyone who missed it, signals are so important. You know, sometimes the signals are subtle and you miss them. They roll right over you. And sometimes they hit you right in the face. Um, I also think what you're saying is really important, too, to point out that sometimes you got to try it on for size to see if it fits or not. And once you get it on, you're like, ah, this, this doesn't fit as well as I thought it would. And then, you know, you try something else on. Um, yep. But that self-awareness, yep. that self-awareness to know when to cut bait, you know, and, and try another line or whatever metaphor we want to use, I think is super an important lesson. I'm glad that you mentioned that. Yeah, yeah. I think it's important. You know, we, we hear a lot. We hear the messaging that we get a lot is like, you know, never quit. And I'm just like, that's actually the wrong messaging. I think yeah. we need to be okay with pivoting when, yes. when the pivot is necessary. And it's not that you quit at the drop of a dime because something is not working out in the moment. Oftentimes when something is not working out, it means you have to adjust something. Like if you keep doing the same thing over and over again and it's not working out, you keep then you haven't changed anything, you keep trying, that's madness. So <laughs> at the minimum, like even if I didn't drop the chemistry major, maybe I should have been like, oh, let me try biology. But I instantly was like, nope, nope, science is my problem. Like I'm like, I don't think this is my realm. This is never something that I enjoy doing. Like I knew I did not enjoy it. It'd be different if I was bad at it, but I was like, I still enjoy the process. I hated yeah. my science classes. I was not a fan. And I would, I actually really tried um, that semester. Like I went to my TA, I got extra tutoring. And I was the kid who was used to coasting through school. I never had to try that hard to get A's and B's. Um, And you're intelligent. Yeah, like, so when I was like, oh, snap, I got a D and I actually tried? I really tried? Oh, no, this is probably not for me. So I do think we need to pay attention to moments when we are being asked to pivot. Because sometimes the pivot is going to set you on the path that you're supposed to actually be on. Yeah, yeah, I love that. Uh, are you an extrovert? No. I am not an extrovert. You seem like an extrovert. I seem like an extrovert because I can be social. And I yeah. am not shy. But I am absolutely an introvert. I prefer yeah. my own company. I am the person who, if I go to a party, within an hour I'm ready to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I do a lot of peopling, I will be at home for the next three days on my couch just okay. avoiding people. And people always assume I'm an extrovert because I'm a speaker. you know. And most of the time before COVID, I'm on a plane. I, like, I, was, I average 110,000 miles a year of travel. And I'm on all types of stages and I'm signing books and I'm taking pictures. And so people assume when I'm on social, I'm very social on social. And people assume like, oh, you're an extrovert. And I'm like, oh, absolutely not. Like what you don't see is... <laughs> After I get back from my trip, 
nobody sees me for three days. You know, yeah. after I signed 300 books at a book signing, I am in my hotel room for the rest of the day and I order in. Restaurant, I'm not going yeah. to that. So, yeah, yeah. absolutely. We're yeah, we're, we're, we're kind of cut from that same cloth. I feel, I feel you on that. Can I tell yeah. you a funny story about Guy Kawasaki since we share that friendship? Yeah. So, when I met Guy for the first time, so I'm an introvert too. Have you read Susan Cain's book? Uh, quiet. I have not, but I know of Susan Cain. I've watched her TED talk, but I haven't read her book yet. Highly recommend it. I mean, it was so insightful to me just to understand myself, yeah. but to also understand the. So there's hybrids, right? There's introverts, extroverts, and then there's the ambivert, which is sort of maybe what you and I are. You know, um, we're on when we need to be on, we're, we're yeah. off when we prefer to be off. Anyway, yeah. so I'm talking with Guy, and love you. I'm not kidding you. And. I will, I've told this story to Guy, but maybe not publicly. So, um, I'm getting the exclusive. I just, he was, I just thought he was the worst. I really <laughs> thought he was he was my worst interview to date for sure, hands down, easy. Really? Um, I was like, who is this guy? He's such a jerk. Like he was just like so like he's giving me like these one word answers and just sort of like very. I felt like he was like um, what do you call it when you're on the witness stand? And um, yes. the, like he was a, a very unwilling participant. He was almost like defiant. And I was like, what is the deal? Like, you just don't like me or like you're just this, you know, uh, anyway, I didn't like him at all. And then uh, we're done with the interview and I was like, that was probably the worst. And um, a few months goes by and uh, he, I don't know, he had another book coming out. And uh, he's written all about the fact that he's this introvert. And uh, and then it hit me. I was like, oh, Guy's not an asshole. He's just an introvert. <laughs> like, he was very quiet. He was probably, maybe he'd talked himself out that day and he just needed to recharge his batteries. But, I don't know, I say that for other introverts and extroverts because sometimes, you know, you don't know who you're talking to. And um, I totally misjudged him at first. And then when I realized that he and I are a lot alike that way, I definitely give him uh, a second shot. I apologize to him, and I sort of <laughs> look at him through a different lens. But um, that's an, so that's funny, an right? important distinction because I do think people. So, like when people meet me in public, I think sometimes they're expecting me to to be very high energy. Yeah, like well, you're outspoken too. Yeah, but like they're expecting you, me to be like really kind of like high energy, very like. Hey, but in like I'm very much the person who will walk into a room and observe before saying anything. Like unless yeah. it's like a room with like my friends, like my closest friends. But if I walk into yeah. a room or an event, I'm very laid back and just like I'll observe the room. I don't have to bring the room to me. Like I don't have to center myself in the room. So people tend to mm -hmm. think like, oh my god, I met Lovey and she was she was very like funny acting about it. And I was like. No, no, it's not that I'm funny acting, it's that like I am not, I don't present in a particular way that people are expecting because I'm the person who's showing up with the, you know, with, on the TED stage and they're expecting this type of special, like really social energy. Yeah. And I'm like, no, yeah. in a room where I don't know anybody, I, I'm just watching. I'm just kind of like sitting behind and, and seeing what's happening. So, yeah. Yeah. Do you get starstruck? Like, have you met anyone who you would really, really admire? Like one of your heroes or someone who's famous or something like that? Do you get starstruck? Not particularly. Like, I don't get starstruck where I'm like stumbling over my words or where I like squeal. I definitely don't do that. 
Um, I've met Oprah. You know, I've interviewed Oprah. I've I've been chosen as part of her Super Soul 100 list, and she's the one who was the test because that is the person who I had on my list is like the person who I admired the most, right? Do and I didn't freak yeah. out. I was just like, really nice to meet you. You know, it's so good to yeah. finally be in the same. It's actually for us to actually finally meet because we've been in rooms together at least 12, 13 times over the years. But I'd always what enjoyed like? that, like, huh? What was she like? Was she generous with you off camera or? Yeah, absolutely. She was warm. Like, she's, she is who she is. Like, she is, she gives this really calming energy, too. That's the other thing that makes it hard to, for me, I was like, I don't see how people can fangirl over Oprah because her energy is calming. Like, you instantly yeah. see her and you feel grounded. It's really interesting. I think she's amazing. Yeah. So when she had me as part of the Super Soul 100, we went to, she threw a brunch for those of us who were on the list. So this list had like Deepak Chopra, Ava DuVernay. So I was in a room full of people who I, could, I should have been fangirling over. But I just, I was like, you know what? These are regular people who happen to do extraordinary things. So walked up and introduced myself to everybody. Um, had great conversations and then met her and she was just like so good to meet you and i'm like oh my gosh you actually wanted me <laughs> to be here on purpose so yeah no i don't yeah. i don't bad girl too much i always want to like put myself in the in the space of this person's a regular person who just did something really extraordinary yeah it's interesting right like it seems like the more confidence the more power you know whatever that you've got the people who know how to use it correctly they act the opposite they act like they have mm -hmm. the least amount of power they're the most chill to me, I think of Oprah, and I, I think like she's the chairman. Like you know, she's just like walking around, like she had nothing to prove. Yeah. You know, she, she's in charge. Like yeah. I said, she's grounded. That's my perception. Like, chairman. Like. Um, yeah, and I think that's why. Yeah. I actually think that's why it's important to find your grounding more and more as you're leveling up. You know, those are not the times for you to get louder necessarily. Like, but it's time mm -hmm. for you to kind of be more assured. And it's why if I'm in a room, I don't feel the need to be the loudest person there. I don't have to be the center of attention. The, so I can be in a room and I'm just watching what's happening in the room because I don't need to be the one. And I think it's okay to kind of be comfortable to step back sometimes. So how do you balance that idea, that, that principle, that philosophy with the title of your book, which is like professional troublemaker. How do yeah. you balance that? Yeah. So yeah, my book is talking about how we should all be professional troublemakers, which is ultimately we are people who are committed to elevating the rooms that we're in to disrupting the world for the greater good and to saying and doing the hard things, especially when it's necessary. And I am the person who's in the room who's saying, Hey, let's think through that idea more, that campaign idea. So it's more thoughtful. You know, I think professional troublemakers are the ones who, We'll call out your uncle at, at dinner for making an inappropriate joke. Or they're the friend who will say, let's have a, a hard conversation. Now, the troublemaking of it all is not like you're walking in a room and throwing a bomb. Or you're walking in a room and instantly yelling and making noise. I think you are clear that when you are in a space, what's happening there is something you are proud of. So sometimes if troublemaking, it, it looks like me stepping back. So if I'm on a panel which is why I actually don't do panels anymore <laughs> because <laughs> I am hypersensitive about taking up too much space on a panel because I can't okay. easily, very easily. 
you know, yeah. I know what I know. I'm very like magnetic and I know this. So I can actually dominate a panel very quickly. So I make it a point if I'm on a panel, if I answer the first question, I won't answer the second. I'll wait until somebody else answered and kind of give that space. And what ends up happening is people afterwards will say, we wish we heard more about from Lovey. So I'm like, you know what? This is why you should just come to my keynotes. But right. troublemaking <laughs> in rooms is also about knowing how much space you take up, right? And also knowing what that space could do to make somebody else's life easier. So sometimes who I am in a room is a person who is challenging things because I know I need to because somebody else is not going to. Um, do you have an example that you can think of, uh, maybe from the book, a case study? Or yeah, well, even just even in general, like I make trouble often <laughs> by just speaking up about what I see, you know. So mm -hmm. I was once invited to keynote uh, an internal conference for a company that was saying that they were working on being more diverse and their initiatives to make sure that, you know, black and brown employees internally felt welcome. And they really wanted me to come speak. They saw my TED talk and I was like, okay, great. Um, so they booked me. And then about two to three weeks before the event, they sent me a flyer and said, we'd love for you to share this on social media of you and your, the other speakers. And it was me, black woman, next yeah. to six white men i see and i said so it's like look at us doing the right thing yes and i was basically the right thing right so i sent yeah. an email a actual really thoughtful email and i said i'd love for you to look at this flyer and see that for me as a black woman it actually makes me uncomfortable because it feels like i'm being tokenized one you right. all actually said you wanted to prioritize diversity. Having one right. black woman on your stage when you have seven other speakers is not diverse, right? It's yeah. that's And they want you to pump it out as if you're correct. endorsing it. Like, yeah. look at us. And I said, yeah. your employees would also not feel comfortable because if you are trying to prioritize the care of these, uh, the people who work internally, and they see this stage, I'm the opening speaker, so they see this black woman in the beginning of the day and then the rest of the day is six white men speaking to them and speaking at them. Yeah. So I challenged that. And what they did is they said, they replied back, the CEO replied back with, well, you know, maybe this year isn't the right year for you to come. And ultimately disinvited me. Oh. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, well, I already have the deposit. So <laughs> that's thing. But it was an interesting moment because interesting. when we, huh? Uh, interesting. Well, I mean, interesting is a euphemism for that's bullshit. It was utter bullshit. <laughs> okay. And it was definitely yeah. a clear moment where I said professional troublemaking and, and being the person who wants to disrupt for good, it can absolutely cost you. Right. But yeah, I did not feel like I could be quiet and honor who I say I am and be the person who's proud of the room that she would be in. Being the only yeah. in a room is not a point of pride. It means I need to figure out how to get more people. And I actually recommended, I said, let me know if you'd like to know what other amazing speakers who are on in, who are in marginalized intersections could also come in that day. Because I didn't just give them the, this is a problem. I gave them the, I can also help you solve this. So. Yeah. Being a troublemaker, being the person who is a disruptor, sometimes it will come with cost. It's not just like happy-go-lucky, everyone's gonna love it. But 
at the end of everything, I want to be proud of who I am. And then I want to make yeah. sure my actions line up with, with who I say I am. And so it was necessary to be said. So that's why I wrote this book is I want us to understand that like our work in this world is going to come with some costs, but it is knowing that for us to build the world that we want to live in, for us to be the person who we say we want to be, for us to, you know, create rooms that we would love to exist in, we're going to have to put certain things on the line. And a lot of us are people of privilege. And in that moment, yeah. I had privilege. I, I, have, I wield a lot of pre- privilege, even though I'm a black woman. I am not poor. I'm Christian. I am straight. I have college-educated family members. I was never the first person to go to college in my family. So I wield a lot of privilege, and I have to use it. I have to use it yeah. to make sure that I am part of this world that I want to be proud of. So it's necessary Let, for us to do it. Let's put a cap on that case study and to me it's fairly obvious what the company should have done but i would love to hear your perspective on it so maybe if you're speaking to companies like hey <laughs> this phrase you can't fake the funk comes to mind um like these guys were faking it and it yeah. was obvious yeah. uh they revealed their true colors right away when they said oh never mind you know if you, yeah. if you don't want to play our game uh so maybe talk to companies uh and tell them what that company should have done yeah. when you were trying to course correct them? So that company should have actually listened with less ego. That CEO for sure came with all the pride and ego and, and felt he was indicted in the, in, the, in the critique of this day. Right. So moving with less ego and realizing that the things we don't realize aren't necessarily things we have to take personally. So he might not have even noticed that there were six white men because for him, that's just default, right? So me pointing it out was an opportunity for growth. So that CEO, the best thing he could have done is to say, oh my goodness, you're actually correct. Could we get three recommendations from you to really make sure this day feels diverse, is diverse, has diversity of thought, expression, and content? And I would have been like, absolutely, here's three amazing speakers. I would have given them three amazing speakers. And they weren't going to all be black women. There would be a black dude. There'd be a Latino person. There'd be somebody. It would actually represent what the world looked like. So their employees can show up better. The reason why people end up in companies and companies go, well, we don't know why this thing happened. Or whenever a moment of backlash happens, a public moment of backlash at a company, like a campaign comes out and everyone's like, why would you get this messaging out, I always ask, who was in the room who knew this would not go well, who did not speak up? There's usually at least one. That person did not speak up because they've seen somebody else be punished for speaking up. They are afraid of the fact that they will stand on an island by themselves. And three, they don't think that they would be listened to or even welcomed. That person being quiet is a liability to your company because when you don't have the troublemakers, the people who are saying, hey, let's rethink that, who is watching for your blind spots? Who's, who's making sure that what shows up in the world is something that they are proud of? So when companies are not celebrating troublemakers, are not welcoming the challenges, Adam Grant calls it the challenge network, the dissenters. When you're not welcoming them into your company, you're putting yourself in constant constant backlash moments it's a liability that's gonna cost you because if everybody in the room is like yes 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 let's do it who is the person who's asking the questions that others will ask 
others who were not in that room. So yeah. yes, he they should have listened to me and fixed that. Because when people see, you know, when chief DEI officers are, are hired, usually they're hired and they end up leaving within a year or two. It's because you can bring me in as a black woman to be your DEI person. I can bring in black employees, but if within the company, once they're hired, they're gaslit, they're punished for their, their way they express something, they're called difficult in their reviews because they use their hands a lot or ask questions, those people will yeah. leave. So for companies, yeah. it's expensive. You're losing money by not welcoming diversity of thought, by not celebrating your troublemakers who are going to look out for you, by not being open to change, and by constantly thinking being challenged is an indictment of you. So yeah, yeah. I'm like, I'm sure that company, which is funny enough, is like, I haven't heard from them. I haven't heard about them. Um, but I just, I'm just like, that can't be the way it is because if they dealt with me in that way imagine the person who's internal who will point yeah. out something that's not okay that person will probably get put on a review and get fired yeah. in six months for saying something you know what comes to mind is a real tragic story um a personal story and the wall street journal just covered this of the zappos ceo tony shea tony yeah. shea is is a victim of what you're talking about he surrounded himself with with yes men Women were there too, obviously. Even, uh, sounds like from the write-up, his brother was there. But everyone was on the payroll, and everyone was living high, literally, with Tony. Yeah. Um, and if you weren't, I mean, you know, and, and in their defense, if there is any, if it's defensible, Tony would cut them off if he didn't, if they didn't agree or, and support his dangerous lifestyle of yeah. what eventually cost him his life. But there's a perfect example of People yeah. should have been troublemakers. People should have been yes. standing up, had the courage yeah. to say, Tony, you're, you're walking dangerously to the edge of the cliff. Correct. You know, I don't care if you cut me off from your life or you cut me off from your payroll. Like, you know. But that's what I'm saying is that, you know, there's somebody yeah. somewhere right now who is saying, oh, I wish I would have said something or oh, yeah. I wish I would have done something. There is that person yeah. who is now convicting themselves because they knew they should have done something more. I want to yeah. be the person who at the end of my life, I'm not sitting here like, oh, I should have done something that, gosh, I should have said something. I wanna live in a way where I am proud in my sunset years to know that I did everything I could, whether or not it got me liked or not, that I moved with integrity first and did what was hard, especially when it was hard because it was what was right. So that's yeah. why I want people to be more open. If you look around you and you realize nobody ever tells you no, it means you have made yourself into the person who can't be told no. It means you yeah. have proven to other people that you, you challenging them is, like them challenging you is some type of liability and you have made yourself into a monster. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. And I, I hope, I really hope that I'm that person when I'm, when I'm called to do the right thing. I, I really hope that I'm that right person. I, I hope that I've done it throughout my life, but you know, I think maybe what I'm thinking of right now is that I think your book's important to read to sort of get prepared to be in that mindset. I was just watching, uh, it was a New York City subway violence you know, against Asians and mm -hmm. some man on the subway was beating up an Asian man. And, and 
course I was disturbed and shocked, but the thing that disturbed me most is everyone was sitting around watching. I was like, yes. what? What? I mean, if I'm on that what? subway, I'm going to try and break up that fight just because it's a fight. I don't care what the color of their skin, their, you know, it's like there's a fight between two humans. That's not, that can't happen on a subway. But everyone just watched it and the guy that, got choked out and then everyone yeah. walked off the subway like, That is problem. the bystander effect, which is so dangerous yeah. and which is also part of the reason why I wrote this book because I want people to feel convicted for the moments when, like if the next yeah. time that shows up around them, they do something. So the bystander effect is the idea that the more people you think will do something, the less you're likely to do it. So then we yeah. see, well, there's 30 people around, they'll stop it. So then we right. just sit back and wait. So then we spend our yeah. whole lives being bystanders and we're watching the world become a dumpster fire and we're thinking everybody else will fix it. No, 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 why not you? We are yeah. constantly handing the baton to everybody else to do the work. Imagine if all of us felt convicted. Imagine if 20 people got up and said, and spread that, that fight apart that person wouldn't be harmed to that point. Everybody was waiting yeah. for somebody else to do something. And that's the problem. We cannot yeah. continue to live in this world and want the world to be better and think everybody else's job. Like it's yeah. so wrong and it's so, but it's the way we operate. It's the way everybody's moving. Everyone's thinking, well, that person will speak up. Which is why whenever I'm in a room and people are like, well, love you will say something. There are days when I actually <laughs> won't. And I'll say, let's test this out and see what happens when I don't say something. Let's see mm -hmm. what happens when I'm not the one who's asking the question that's tough. Oh, it's all going to go to hell? Well, shit. Okay. <laughs> but I think there needs to be where if one person is missing in the room who's, who's usually the one speaking up, it shouldn't be where nobody else is speaking up. Everybody yeah. should feel deeply obligated to be like, okay, I am part of the society. Therefore, if I don't like what's happening, I need to do my part. And everybody, nobody, people are not doing their part. People are not doing the part. Yeah. And troublemakers that exist already are exhausted, right? Yeah. I'm hoping with this well, book, well, I create more troublemakers. Yeah. Well, so I, I agree with you. I will also, I don't like this absolute thinking though, because I think there are a lot of people doing good. The, the other example that came to mind was, I don't know, was it two years ago? Someone came in with extreme violence and shot up, um, uh, a Muslim place of worship. Yeah. Maybe they burnt it down, something bad. It was white supremacist or something did it. And then the Jewish community said, you guys can come over and worship in our synagogue. Mm. Right? Like, basically, they said, the Muslims are welcome inside our place of worship because your place of worship got burnt down. Which I love because it's, mm -hmm. you're right, it is always like, you know, it's us versus them or it's like, right. that's not my problem. But I, I do also want to promote this uh, fact that there's a lot of people out there quietly and maybe not so quietly sometimes doing great things. And, and that's what I think your book is also promoting. It's like, you know, do good in the world, step up, step up, you know, step up to the mic, step up to the plate, you know, step in, say something, speak up. That's yeah, what it's about. And I think here's the thing, though. There are a lot of people doing amazing stuff in the world. But yeah. there's a lot of people who are not. And there are a lot of people who, yeah. who, who choose silence in times when they should not. There are a lot of people who choose yeah. inaction. And I always ask myself, will I be proud of my silence when I walk out of the room? Or will right. my inaction convict me? So this is right. not necessarily about everybody, you know, helping somebody else get a new house of worship. 
I think when we think about courage and, and, and troublemaking, it's even in the, it's especially in the small moments, right? In the tedious yeah. moments when we might not think it matters that much. Because if you don't yeah. do it in the tedious moments, in the small, tiny moments where you're being asked to, what practice and what muscle do you have to do it in the major moments when now it's yeah. presented to you? So we, in the rooms that we are in, even if it's saying, hey, let's rethink that or, hey, let's do something else because that messaging is not as, as thoughtful as we want it to be. Or literally asking a friend, hey, you've hurt my feelings. Can we have a conversation about this? I think those matter just as much yeah. as the big moments when you're like, oh, my God, I have to challenge a system. You know, so we have to yeah. do our part every single day in the in the spaces that we are in. I'm not asking everybody to become Superman. You know, I'm not saying save Gotham, but you know, if you can <laughs> save the room that you're in, if you can give somebody two dollars who doesn't have it, if you can make sure the intern's voice is heard in the meeting, that's absolutely part of what shifts the world. You know, there's all types of domino effects that come from us taking action in those small moments. So let's, I'm, I'm yeah. definitely not discounting those moments. Yeah, and I love this idea of, of, of micro and even looking inside yourself. I think maybe I have a, uh, I have a, a daily battle with myself every single day. You know, like I'm trying to be a little bit better today than I was yesterday. Sometimes I am and sometimes I am not. And you're right, I think even this micro, this little stuff that you're talking about could just be these little things that we do for ourselves. If someone says something that we that hurts our feelings or if, if it's inappropriate, I'm guilty of this all the time, just letting it go instead of like, you know what, that wasn't very nice or that wasn't appropriate. Or So I think even speaking up for ourselves um, as well as the intern is, is just as important because all those little things, and this is, this is something that I talked, or I've thought a lot about uh, this idea of courage. To me, Courage is a muscle. Like yeah. the more you use it, the stronger it gets. Absolutely. The opposite is also true. You know, when you're not using your courageous muscle, you get weak and flabby and you know, you have that opposite effect. But yes. the more that you are this troublemaker, the you know, it it's a positive connotation of stepping up, saying the right thing, doing the right thing. It gets yes. easier to do. Right? Yes. Yes. And it becomes less less jarring to your system. You know, I think about the late, great John Lewis who said, we must be ready to make necessary good trouble. It's why troublemakers are not haters. They're not contrarians. They're not trolls. They're not doing the thing that feels tough just because they want to make somebody uncomfortable. They're doing it because yeah. they realize this is necessary for the better world that we want or for the better work that you want to create. You know, so when you have those people in the room, the people who can tell you no, one, they're looking out for you and they are making sure that you are showing up in the best way possible. It is in your best interest for your friends to be able to tell you no, right? Like yeah. they'll keep you from a lot of pain that you might have to deal with if they're not telling you. And Tony's story is absolutely one of those big ones. When you hear any stories around, you know, public fi figures who fell into some sort of rabbit hole of like addiction or there's usually enablers. They usually have enablers, but I'm like, I'm always like, who was the person who was like, I'm going to try to help them, even though it might cost me the friendship, even though it might cost me the, the payroll, right? Yeah. So I just do think, and, and those of us who are privileged, and I'm not even ask, asking the people who are just on survival mode to do this. Actually, we got to use our power so the people who are living paycheck to paycheck are not the ones 
putting their job on the line. So the people who yeah. have no home are not the ones who are saying and do the right things. Those of us who, at, during COVID, were never worried about how we were going to pay our rent. You know, we're never worried about where our next meal was coming from. We're feeling physically safe in our homes. We've got to be the ones using our power and our voice and our access for good. Yeah. You know what else came to mind when I was, when I was, uh, well, when I first started digging into the book, I thought of this quote I heard somewhere. It's, uh, the opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is apathy, doing nothing, not Mm -hmm. caring. Yes. You know, and that's, to me, that seems like part of the message. Absolutely. I think, and I think love is a verb. I think community is a verb. I think leadership is a verb. And that verb means you're going to have to take some action. Leaders cannot be called leaders if they are not having people behind them who can actually even teach them something. I think leadership shows like vulnerability, willingness to grow being a forever student. That for me is what a leadership, a leader is. And same for like a community. A community holds me accountable. They affirm my life, but they also challenge me. They support me, but they also tell me no in the moments when I'm going the direction I shouldn't. And same for love. Like if I say I love you, I need to be able to show that in the way I'm showing up for you. I mean, we were just sitting back, you know, (laughs) chopping it up, reminiscing about the good old days and all that. (laughs) You know, tracking my roots. Where I came from and where I'm going. But like I say, man, always said it. It's not about the destination. It's all about the journey. Ain't nothing changed but the weather. The dangling carrot that hang from the rear view. Uh-huh. Your dreams in the past ain't nowhere near you. Uh-huh. Backseat drivers got nothing but two cents. Shotgun riders too biased. They all.